0: Good morning. morning. Pastor Brian is uh, wrapping up two weeks of much deserved break, so I get to spend another week with you. Um, No, 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 (laughs) no. You've just been naughty now. Um, For those visitors amongst us, please excuse the rest of the students. I really appreciated Pastor Nate's sharing this morning because it reminded me of a conference, a youth conference I was in at the end of my junior year of high school where God first started talking to me about ministry. And during my senior year, I kind of wavered, um, uh, not in my faith but in that calling, and then I attended a family camp, the association, the church church, association that I was a part of had a family camp at the end of each year and it was a big gathering hundreds of people would be there there would be a youth ministry component which I went to and again God started talking to me and the organizers of the camp brought all the young people up in front of the congregation one one day uh, to have them pray for us and an American missionary that was in that group came to me afterwards and she said, you are the tallest one in the group so I covenanted to pray for you. What an honor to have somebody commit to pray for you. Um, And I encourage you to pray for our youth this week because you never know when God takes their labors (laughs) and our youth and your prayers and he just connects them. In fact, this this missionary is now retired, she lives in Oklahoma, and I communicated with her about six months ago, and she reminded me, remember when I committed to pray for you. What an honor. So I appreciate that, and I encourage you to pray for our youth this week as they go to this amazing event. We are continuing in our series, uh, We Are One, and, and in fact, I've called the message this morning, We Are One, because this, this passage Ephesians 4, verse 1 through 6 is really a pivotal passage in this book. Paul has this practice where, and if you're familiar with Paul's writings, he often starts his letters with theoretical teaching, the theology and the doctrine, and then he transitions to practical living. And that's exactly what he did in the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters is very theory-oriented. It's kind of cerebral stuff. Uh, but then he's, he clearly transitions to very practical living. And so that's, that's the format that I'm going to follow this morning. Uh, looking first at the theory, and we will look at verses 4 through 6. And then we'll come back and look at the practical application of that theory in verses 1 through 3. So let me define a couple of terms. And, and I, I share these terms with you, and I define them. And I'm sensitive because I don't want you to think that I'm kind of speaking down to you, that you are in there thinking, well, duh, I understand what those mean. Um, but, but maybe, maybe you don't. And so I want to just define these these words. Uh, they might come up on the screen real soon. And if they don't, that's okay. Ah, there they are. So theology and doctrine. Theology is the study of God. Theos, God, theology, study. And, 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 and it's that big category that those going into ministry study year after year after year. Um, and, and we actually read theology in scripture, and we sing theology in songs, and we hear theology in messages. So, theology is a study of God. Doctrine is a set of beliefs. Now, sometimes the words theology and doctrine are used interchangeably. Uh, we as a church have a set of doctrine, a set of beliefs. You can go to our church website and, and, and find them and find out what we believe. And if you making this church your home, I would expect that you've already done that and, and that you agree with the doctrine. And so these, these words are going to come up in the message this morning. A friend of mine years ago when I was a pastor uh, said to me, your church is very doctrinal. And, then, and so I reminded him what the apostle Paul wrote to Timothy when he said, guard your life and doctrine closely. God commands us to know what we believe and to guard what we believe, to protect what we believe. Now, a, a critical component of, of um, theology is this idea of one. One. <laughs> It irritates some people. It frustrates our critics, this, this position of, of one, one God, one body, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. Um, but, it's, but it's there. It's, it's, it's part of our DNA as Christians. John Wesley said, I want the whole Christ for my Savior the whole Bible for my book, the whole church for my fellowship, and the whole world for my mission field. And we ditto that. We, we want the fullness of our one God in our lives and through our lives and counseling us. We want the full counsel of God. So I've got two main points, and I'm not sure why the position of my Bibles is distracting me this morning. I'm going to put it there. Um, I, have, I have two main uh, points, and the one is simply what we believe. So what is it that we believe? Then, so let's read Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4 through 6, and then I'm going to come back to verses 1 through 3. And verses, verses 4 through 6 is just crammed with great theology. Uh, Paul, writing, says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope. That belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There are volumes of books on theology (laughs) written just on those concepts. Paul, in these verses, uses the word called or calling or call four times, twice in these three verses. And I'll come back to that later. Seven times he uses the word one. So let's, so let's look at these seven ones. The first one is one body. There is one church. We are called to this community of believers. And this community of believers, this, this body of Christ, not just this local church, but the body of Christ, is like no other organism in the world. It is somewhat strange, but so wonderful at the same time. The head of this body is divine. It is Christ. Yet the rest of the body is human. The head of the body is perfect. The other parts of the body are very imperfect. The head of the body directs. The other parts of the body follow. Sometimes. The head is always present and always awake. The members of the body sometimes act as if the head is asleep. The head of the body is always listening. The members of the body sometimes speak as if the head is deaf. The head always loves and cares and watches over his body. What a strange organism. What a wonderful organism living entity, the body of Christ, the church universal and local, the church visible and invisible, and we are all a part of this one body. In the body of Christ, we can be insensitive and hard of hearing and fun-loving and arrogant and stuffy and athletic and unathletic and carefree and loud and quiet and meticulous and sloppy and egotistical and caring and loving and patient, But when the body of Christ works, when the body of Christ is in operation, when the body of Christ does what God is directing us to do, there is no more powerful agent for change in this world. The body of Christ that we are a part of. One body. Second, there's one spirit. When Jesus was talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Jesus likened the spirit to the wind. We hear the wind, we feel the wind, but we can't really see the wind. We don't know where the wind comes from or where it's going. Jesus says the Spirit of God is like that. Powerful, a change agent, but we, we don't fully understand everything about the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is that which ignites a little spark in us when we first start thinking about spiritual things. The Spirit of God draws us to God, without which we cannot come to God. The Spirit of God regenerates us and turns us into new creations, and that's just a mind-boggling thought. The Spirit of God witnesses with your spirit that you're a child of God. If you have not had that experience, seek it out. Ask the Lord. Pray to that the Spirit of God would witness to your spirit that you're his child. The Spirit of God encourages and comforts. It turns heavy loads into light loads. The Spirit of God convicts and judges and brings guilt. But the Spirit of God also lifts and releases and forgives and cleanses. The Spirit of God walks with us, talks to us, gifts us, empowers us, Fills us, and we can go on and on. One spirit. Third, there's one hope. The word hope there means expectation. What a wonderful thing that hope is. But there's this paradox within hope. Because within this concept of Christian hope, we recognize that, uh, that the, uh, the best and sometimes the most powerful lessons we learn about hope is in times of hopelessness. When things are going wrong and it's difficult and then it's pressing in on us from all directions, we get to experience this one hope in Christ. Leonid Brezhnev was the leader of the Soviet Union for 18 years. He died in 1982. And the Soviet Union was kind of this amalgamation of 50 nations, but they controlled just about all of Eastern Europe, much of Asia. They had influence in many parts of the world. And it was a brutal, brutal regime, anti-God, anti-family, anti-Christian, a very brutal, godless, atheistic uh, movement and country. Or well, when Brezhnev died, his wife, Victoria, stood at his open casket at the funeral. And just before the lid was lowered, she reached in and she made a sign of a cross on her dead atheistic husband's chest. Why? Was there some hope in her that maybe her atheistic husband was dead? I mean, was, was, was wrong? Was there some hope in her that this whole regime and government that her husband had led was wrong about the fact that God was very much alive? Was it just a protest? I don't know. But hope is a powerful thing, my friends. And God, by the way, is not dead. He's alive and he's active and moving in this place. There's one God, one hope. Fourth, there's one Lord. If there's one Lord, it means there's one Savior. There's not just one Savior for the Jew and one Savior for the Greek. There's not just a Savior for the free and a Savior for the slave. There's not a Savior for the male and a Savior for the female of the rich and the poor. There's one Savior, one Lord. Some say that that's too narrow, it's too exclusive, <laughs> it's too narrow-minded, but, but that's what our word teaches, that's what God teaches us. There's one Lord who offers one salvation that leads then to, number five, one faith. The word faith means trust and confidence. Faith is always a gift from God, and God gives us faith so that we would have faith in Him. Faith cannot be bought, it cannot be conjured up, it cannot be drummed up, it cannot be packaged and sold. Faith is not a feeling. Faith is a fact. Just because you don't feel God moving in your life, it doesn't mean that there's a lack of faith in God. Sometimes we go through dry areas and, and difficult areas. It doesn't mean God is distant. Our faith is real and our faith is a fact. It's not a feeling. Our faith doesn't save us. God saves us, but through faith. Ephesians 2.8, for, for by grace you have been saved through faith. A story of a man who fell off a cliff, and on the way down he, he was reaching out to branches, and then he grabbed one and held on, and then he called out, Is there anyone up there? And there was his voice says, Yes, I'm here, it's the Lord. Do you have faith in me? The man says, Yes, please rescue me. I can't hold on much longer. So the Lord says, Well, if you have faith in me, just let go and I'll save you. The man says, Is there anyone else up there? <laughs> <laughs> There's one faith. And God infuses that faith in us, and He strengthens that faith in, faith in us. There's one baptism. When Paul writes, this he's not referring to modes of baptism. We we practice baptism by immersion, and there's and there's reason why we do that. And we'd encourage you, as Pastor Brian said in that video, if you haven't been baptized yet, ask the Lord about it and talk to him and call the church office and 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 sign up for baptism in uh, August. There are various practices of baptism around the world, different different religions practice baptism, but we believe in one baptism in Christ. And then there's one God, the Father of all, over all, through all, and in all. Wow, there's a lot of theology just in that statement. One God, Father of all, over all, through all, in all. We call that monotheism. One God. He's overall, which means he's transcendent. He's above, he's big, he's he's universe wide, even beyond the universe. He's transcendent, he's over everything. But then he's through all. He works through everything, he sets things up, he lays a path for us. And we we call this the providence of God. He's in all, he's imminent. his imminence means that he's here with us, present. There's a wonderful kid's song, How big is God, how big and wide his vast domain to begin to tell his lips can only try. He's big enough to rule the mighty universe, but small enough to live within my heart. It's hard to understand that the transcendence of God, the eminence of God, the providence of God, one God, In three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All right, Wayne, that's a lot of theory. (laughs) It's a lot of mental stuff. Yes, it's good stuff though, right? (laughs) What do we do with it? If we believe all this stuff, if we believe that there's one faith, one God, one Lord, one baptism, one hope, what do we do with it? How do we live it out? Francis Schaeffer, one of the best defenders of the Christian faith in the 20th century, wrote a book called How Should We Then Live? So that's my second main point. How should we then live? If we believe this stuff, which we do, how do we live it out? How do we walk it out? Well, let's look at verses one through three. Paul says, I are therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This word called, again, Paul, Paul uses it four times in these six verses. It means to summons. God calls us. He summons us. His spirit ignites that little spark in us. And we start listening to him. And we start recognizing that something's happening to me. And then God draws us to himself. And we accept him as our saviour. That's the summons, that's the calling. And so Paul is talking to Christians who have heard this calling, who have responded to the summons of God. And then he says, walk in a way that's worthy of this calling. Now, now that word worthy, they're kind of. we have to understand the word worthy, because we know that we are very unworthy of the grace of God. And Paul isn't saying that we have to be worthy in order to be called, Paul is recognizing we've already been called. We've already surrendered our life to Christ. And now Paul is saying, you need to walk in a way that positively reflects what Christ has done inside of you. In that sense, be worthy of the calling. When I was in graduate school, we had a professor who was also a pastor and, and he was just a great individual, um, written a bunch of books, a well-known conference speaker. And about two or three years after I graduated, I learned that he had been fired because of a string of illicit relationships that he had had. And his supervisor went into his office one day when this broke out, and in a state of righteous indignation, I'm not sure if I'd do this, but stormed into his office, pulled his credentials off the wall and smashed them on the floor. (laughs) Was that professor worthy of teaching us students about the faithfulness and love of God while he's having extramarital affairs? A police officer that wears a badge and we find out has been committing crimes or extorting people, we would say they're not worthy to wear the badge. That's what Paul is saying. Are you worthy... To carry the name of Christian, are you worthy of that? Paul is saying, walk in a way that you are worthy of this. Matthew ten thirty eight, Jesus says, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. That's those that have already accepted Christ. If we're not willing to walk daily with Christ in a sacrificial, humble, gentle way, then we're not worthy. In verse 2, Paul tells us how to work, walk in a worthy manner. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Let's look at those four things that Paul mentions. Humble. Have a humble opinion of yourself. Humility was a foreign term in the pagan world. In fact, some church historians says it's Christians that actually introduced this as a positive characteristic. It was foreign in the pagan world for somebody to be humble. They were strong and arrogant and forceful and and clawed their way through life and then Jesus comes along and says, no, you have to be humble. Do not think of yourself more highly of someone else. Second, Paul says, we walk worthily with the Lord when we're gentle. Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek For they shall inherit the earth. Meekness is not weakness. Did you get that? Meekness is not weakness. In fact, when you exercise meekness, I think it's a strength. Meekness is not indifference. Meekness means you're gentle. Paul also says the way that we walk worthily for the Lord is if we're patient, not easily provoked to anger. Because we're all part of one faith and one body, and, but we're different parts. We've got different ideas and different preferences and different opinions. We come from different places, and we're in different places on our spiritual walk. There's some that might not be getting some of the concept as well as you do. Some might interpret those concepts different than you do. Paul says, be patient, and then bearing with one another in love. Another word for bearing is tolerance. This, this concept actually suggests differences of opinion because we don't bear with somebody in love with something that we agree. We don't have to bear with them if we agree with it. We bear with somebody if we don't agree with it. There's something going on that, oh, I don't kind of like that or I wouldn't do that. It's not a preference of mine. We tolerate those things. We don't tolerate what we love. I wouldn't go home and say, honey, I tolerate you. My wife would give me some of the dunamis we spoke about last week. <laughs> no, i go home and say, honey, I love you. But Paul is saying when we have differences of opinion, which in a community like this we're going to have, bear with one another in love. That's how we walk our faith out in a worthy manner. And then in verse 3, we might ask Why? Why do we do this? Why do we walk in a manner that's worthy of our faith? Why must we be humble and gentle and patient and bearing? Or Paul says, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I like the way that the NIV puts it. It says, make every effort to keep the unity in the church. Make every effort. John Calvin says, among Christians, there ought to be so great a dislike of schism as that they may always avoid it as fast as lies in their power. That we Christians ought to dislike schism and division and disunity so much that we're going to do everything in our power. Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity. John Calvin also says that the devil's chief device is disunity and division. If we are truly one God, I mean one body, and we believe in one faith and one Lord and one Father, one hope, one baptism, then wouldn't it be natural and wouldn't it follow that we would do everything in our power to maintain the unity in the church? I'm not saying that we're going to maintain the unity at all cost. And I think it was uh, Charles Spurgeon that says that uh, the truth should guide our effort for unity. But if, but if we agree on, on the truth, then wouldn't we make every effort to keep the unity when there's differences of opinion? In, in fact, I'm going to demonstrate for you one of, one of the best ways to make every effort to keep the unity in the church. Okay? Just keep your mouth shut. You don't always have to say something. You don't always have to express your uh, opinion. You don't always have to win an argument. You don't always have to talk up at a meeting. Sometimes the most gracious thing you can do with someone that's struggling is to just keep your mouth shut. Make every, sometimes that's hard for us, make every effort, <laughs> make every effort to keep the unity in the church. Sometimes it's just a matter of keeping quiet. Sometimes, in fact, we have to keep up because some of those essential truths are being questioned. But if they're non-essential, let it go. Unfortunately, we Christians don't have a very good track record historically in how we've made every effort to keep the peace. Unfortunately, there's been times when we've done a miserable job at it. I think at times our efforts to keep the unity and in the, in, in the peace in the church have maybe caused people to run away from the Father than to run to him. As we wrap this up, I'm going to just share four examples with you. And we could, we could share a whole slew of them, but just four. When you're upset with something in the church, how do you speak to it? I want to suggest something. And I actually shared this in a message about three or four years ago. Don't bring it to church. Because when we come to church, we are here to focus on that one God, that one faith, that one Lord... And from the ushers to the platform and all of us, we want to be unified in our worship and we want to listen to God. And when you walk into a church and somebody starts telling you about something that they don't like going on in church, it starts causing us to take our eyes off of the unity of worship and to reflect on problems and negative issues. So if you have an issue with a church, it's fine. Come to the office on Monday and talk about it. Don't bring it. ...to church on Sunday morning. And if you do have a concern, it's fine. There's uh, there's nothing wrong with having a concern... ...about what's going on in the church. But do it, as Paul says, with gentleness... ...and meekness and patience. The second area is defending our faith. Uh, I am totally committed to defending my faith. I enjoy it. I will do it. I know what I believe. I do not doubt what I believe... I do not waver. However, there is this line when we defend in our faith that we cross when we become conceited and arrogant and pushy and holier-than-thou. It bothers me when Christians criticize Christians. It bothers me how Christians criticize Christians in social media and public places and we call each other names. A pastor once called me an almost heretic, heretic, because he and I disagreed on one of the non-essentials of our faith. He literally called me an almost heretic. I'm not sure exactly what that means. (laughs) Oh, my friends, be very careful what you call people. To call somebody a heretic is a serious thing, serious thing. I think we've done a poor job historically when it comes to racial issues. Some of you are thinking, are you really going there? <laughs> I think we have. I think we've done a poor, poor job at doing everything we can to build the unity of the church when it comes to racial and ethnic differences. I shared the story several years ago. I was a candidate for a job um, at a church in another state many years ago. And some of the leaders in the church went to the past and raised the concern that I, if they hired me, would attract black people to the church. First of all, it doesn't follow in my (laughs) limited mental capacity that a white man from Africa would attract black people to a church in America. The logic is not there. maybe, Maybe I'm missing something. But isn't it tragic that a church would be concerned that the ratio of ethnicity might swing a certain direction, God help us. Would it bother you if that happened in this church? I hope not. Mahatma Gandhi, probably one of the most powerful people in history that never was elected to office, was frustrated with the caste system in India, and he hated it. This system that people were born into and you were locked into a level of society. You could never move up or down until you were reincarnated into another life. And he actually read the Gospels and he loved the teaching of Jesus. And he went to church one day and he might have been dressed in his Hindu garb, I don't know, but when people saw him, they said they stopped him at the door and said, Mr. Gandhi, you need to go worship your own gods. And Gandhi later said, I would have followed Jesus if it wasn't for Christians. God help us. God help us if our insensitivity to people that are different than us causes somebody to run away from the Father rather than run to him. And then I think we've done a lousy job with politics. I think we've allowed politics to create division in the church rather than unity. I was driving down a road once, and this was during an electoral cycle, probably 16 years ago. There was a church marquee sign on the road, and they were literally in brazen letters endorsing a a particular person for the presidency. And, And then I thought to myself, driving down there, what if I was driving down the road desperately needing some spiritual help and guidance, and I came from the other side of the political aisle and I saw that sign with. Would, would, the, would that sign say you are welcome? Come? No. Do you realize that there are millions of people on the other side of your political spectrum who believe in one God, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one hope? Do you realize that? We're all sinners saved by grace. We've chosen to come together in this place, this local church, to be a part of this body of believers. And in many respects, we are like a hospital, and we've come wounded and scarred, looking for hope. And what do we find? We're just <laughs> all of us are wounded and scarred, looking for hope. But we're one family of believers, working it out, walking it out. We believe in one God held together, one hope, one faith. Let me finish by reading from John 17. John 17, verse 21. Jesus is praying that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you love me. So I guess we can wrap up with two challenging thoughts. Number one is, do you believe in the one true God? If not, you can accept him and embrace him right now. But secondly, are you walking in a way Testifying to that one true God in a way that the world would come to believe because of your testimony. We are going to be led in worship by a song. It has these lines in it Make me your vessel, make me an offering, make me whatever you want me to be. Is that your prayer? Make me an offering. Why? So that I can be puffed up now, so that together we can be a testimony so that the world would believe in our one true God. Let's stand and worship and respond as the worship team leads us.
1: I came here with nothing, but all you have given me, Jesus bring new wine out of me, in the crushing, in the pressing, you are making, soil I now surrender. You are breaking a new ground. You are breaking a new ground. Make me an offering, make me whatever you want me to be. I came here with nothing, but all you have given me, Jesus, bring new wine out of me.
0: morning as we've been singing that song, you've thought to yourself, there's just no new wine inside of me. Ask the Lord to refresh that, to renew it. There's prayer partners on either side that'll pray with you if if you need them. Uh, Come talk to a pastor during the week. Um, Allow this Lord to create a new wine and a fresh new vision inside of you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We truly believe, Lord, there's one God, one faith, one hope, one baptism, one Lord, uh, one God, the Father over all and in all and through all. We believe that. Lord, uh, help us to live it out. Um, I know it's easy to say it, Lord, but help us truly to live it out. This afternoon, next week, in the months and years to come, to live out in a way that we're worthy, that we demonstrate to the world that would... uh, think think that we're different or we're weird, uh, that they would be drawn to the Father because of this new wine inside of us. And then, Lord, if there's those here this morning that are just running dry in their spiritual walk and they're maybe frustrated where they are spiritually, I pray that you would make that new wine bubble up inside of them. And then I pray for all of us as a church, as ministries, that you would, Lord, um, make us a vessel, make us an instrument of your peace in this world and help us to do everything within our power to keep the unity in the body of Christ. Go with us, I pray. Bring a special blessing on each family represented here this morning. We ask this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.